0: What and who do you include in a national Latino museum? That's a question that many have been asking since late 2020 when Congress greenlit the creation of the National Museum of the American Latino. But the idea of this museum, it goes back even further. Today, we want to share with you an episode from our colleagues at Latino USA. The story traces through decades of advocacy and politics to see how we came to this moment and explores how the National Museum of the American Latino, which doesn't even have a building yet, is taking its first steps towards becoming a reality. Take a listen.
1: I think someone we know is in
0: here. Oh, yeah. And we know
2: this person, I think, pretty well. It's a Wednesday morning in June. The Smithsonian's National Museum of American History in Washington, D.C. is mostly empty right now. Its doors won't open to the public for another hour and a half. But my colleague Alejandra Salazar and I got early access today. So we're here. And so is our boss. Well, kind of.
1: Yeah, that's Maria. That's (laughs) my
2: She's standing there with poop earrings and her red lipstick.
1: Okay, so she isn't actually here, here. But she's on a screen in front of us, dressed in a black jumpsuit and heels, welcoming us to a groundbreaking new exhibition called Presente, a Latino History of the United States. And now I'm standing here with Ray, my colleague you just heard from, Reynaldo Laños Jr. And we're face to face with a life-size video of Maria Hinojosa. (laughs) Hi, Maria. (laughs) Hey Maria
2: Maria is one of about a dozen Latinos and Latinas featured in this exhibition for their work in the Latino community. I'm the anchor and executive
3: producer of Latino
2: U.S.A. Which she busy. pops up on screens in the center of the gallery space, along with others. A nurse, an immigration activist, other journalists like her.
1: It's kind of funny. We usually don't have Maria watching us while we're out working as producers for Latino U.S.A.
2: Presente is housed in the Molina Latino Family Gallery. It's in the Museum of American History, and it's the Smithsonian's first permanent space dedicated to the Latino experience in the United States. That alone is something remarkable. But we're here to cover the opening of this show, mainly because it's a precursor of something big to come.
4: Thank you all for being here today and helping us celebrate this momentous day. Today we celebrate this new gallery, and soon we'll celebrate an entire museum dedicated to the rich and vibrant history of the American Latino.
1: That's Jorge Samanillo. He's the inaugural director of the upcoming museum he's talking about, the Smithsonian's National Museum of the American Latino. And Presente is a major step towards that museum.
4: Like our democracy, we're all part of this new museum. I hope you enjoy the exhibit and due course. I look forward to seeing you all at the new National Museum of the American Latino. Thank you.
3: Futuro Media and PRX, it's Latino USA. I'm Maria Hinojosa. Today, we trace the origins of the National Museum of the American Latino and how it's starting to take shape. Museums are political spaces. They carry a big responsibility to decide which stories and artifacts to preserve across generations over time, they help define our social and cultural identities. The Smithsonian Institution is no exception. Home to some of our biggest national museums, the Smithsonian strives to capture the history and culture of the entire United States. But that's easier said than done. The institution has repeatedly failed to fulfill its mission in the past, especially when it comes to honoring and spotlighting Black, Brown, Asian, and indigenous people. Now, nearly two centuries after the Smithsonian was founded, its roster is expanding to include the National Museum of the American Latino. Getting Here was decades in the making. In 1994, the Smithsonian released a report called Willful Neglect, which found that Latinos and Latinas were left out in nearly every aspect of the Smithsonian's operation. The report made waves, and it sparked a campaign to create a national museum for Latinos and Latinas. After two decades, in late 2020, Congress finally approved the creation of the National Museum of the American Latino. The National Museum of the American Latino doesn't even have a building yet. And it's not expected to open to the public for at least another decade. But the museum is already making moves. A founding director, a board, and some core staff have been hired. And it's even debuted its first show. It's already creating a foundation that the rest of the institution will be built off of. And that calls for some scrutiny full disclosure, yes, I was interviewed and featured in the museum's latest show, Presente, because of my work as a Latina journalist, but I haven't been involved with the project in any other way, and neither has my team, and I haven't been involved in reporting out this story. So, with that said, how do you create a National Latino Museum? Latino USA producers Alejandra Salazar and Reynaldo Leanos Jr. trace how years of advocacy led us to this moment, and they're going to explore how the museum takes its first steps towards becoming a reality.
1: We walk into the Smithsonian's Museum of American History, and we're welcomed by the word PRESENTE. It's in all caps, cut out of a large black panel at the entrance of the Molina Gallery. Presente's mission is to showcase how Latino history is American history. That's a significant challenge, and the show's ambition becomes even clearer when we go inside, because the gallery isn't that big. It's basically one large room, a modest size for a gallery meant to tell centuries of Latinx narratives. Colorful artifacts hang on the wall. The first piece that greets us is this bright red dance outfit from New Mexico used in ceremonies honoring Native people from the region. And this is, like, this really beautiful dress with fringe and feathers and beadwork.
2: Behind it, there's, like, you know, there's a video playing of people who are, you know, um, who are dancing and playing with some of their music as well.
1: More items, over 200 of them, placed around the gallery, tell stories of migration, colonialism, political movements, and Latinx culture. There's a registration form from 1867 for enslaved persons in Puerto Rico, a 19th-century printing press evoking the work of Latinx journalists and writers who documented historic moments like the Mexican-American War. Tiny makeshift raft made of found materials like wood and styrofoam. Cuban refugees used it to make a 215-mile journey to the U.S. back in the 90s an old skateboard and vintage punk music records, a backpack and sneakers worn by migrants, construction hats and graduation caps, protest signs and statuettes of Catholic saints. In other settings, these pieces might be dismissed as small, everyday items. Now, they sit under spotlights in a national gallery space, each offering a small gateway to another person's life. Ray and I walk up to a sculpture. As we take in the piece, we get to speak with Henry Munoz, the chairman of the board for the National Museum of the American Latino.
5: If you made me pick one thing in this entire gallery, I would pick the Tree of Life by Maestra Veronica Castillo. I just think it's beautiful.
1: The Tree of Life, Árbol de la Vida in Spanish. El Árbol de la Vida is a popular kind of sculpture found throughout Mexico and inspired by the biblical Tree of Life. Veronica's version here looks like a multicolored skeleton of a tree made of clay. Small figurines of Latinx icons rest on its branches, like labor organizers Dolores Huerta and Emma Tenayuca, Supreme Court Justice Sonia Sotomayor, baseball player Mariano Rivera, artist Ana Mendieta.
5: I just think it's fantastic. It's got the LGBTQ community. Look at the astronauts. The storytelling is just fantastic.
1: Henry has been involved with public efforts to create a national Latinx museum for close to 30 years, basically since the Willful Neglect Report revealed the lack of a Latinx representation within the Smithsonian.
5: I'm one of those people who's been waiting 500 years for this to happen.
1: (laughs) Henry's frustration over the slow-moving process of making a new museum echoes across the Smithsonian's history. For example, the creation of the Smithsonian's National Museum of the American Indian wasn't approved until November 1989. Yes, 1989. For more than a decade prior, Native American tribes and activists were publicly calling out museums across the country for stealing the bones and artifacts of their ancestors. At the center of it all was the Smithsonian which was holding the skeletal remains of approximately 18,000 Native Americans. In September 1989, the Smithsonian finally agreed to repatriate remains to their respective tribes, a process that's still ongoing today. That same year, legislation to create a National Museum of the American Indian under the Smithsonian was introduced and passed in Congress. Fifteen years later, in 2004, the museum in Washington, D.C. finally opened its doors. Following generations of exclusion and theft from Native Americans, it took the institution about 150 years to highlight the people whose land its museums stand on to begin with. Another example is the most recent Smithsonian Museum. The National Museum of African American History and Culture literally took a century to become a reality. Black Civil War veterans proposed the idea for a monument or memorial for African-Americans in 1915, and a bill was introduced to Congress a year later. But the idea would take years to garner political support. And even when it looked like it might happen every few decades or so, Congress wouldn't allot enough funding to the project. An iteration of that legislation, with partial funding, was finally approved by Congress in 2003, and the museum opened to the public over a decade later in 2016. Like these other museums, Henry believes a National Latino Museum is a chance to capture the various and varied roles Latinos have played in shaping this country.
5: Our people have been here since before there was a United States of America. And so this gallery has an opportunity to create cultural understanding at a moment in our country's history where we really need it.
1: Henry has spent decades working with the Smithsonian. He served on its national board, and he eventually became the chairman of the Latino Center, the Smithsonian's response to its infamous report. Henry's a big donor, too. His name is on the wall at the entrance of the Presente exhibition. It represents what he's been advocating for all these years.
5: So the fact that it took, you know, 30 years of educating not just the members of Congress, but the public about the importance of this museum is... um, that's just the way it is. And I'm glad that we're here today, and I hope I'm here long enough to see the opening of the doors of the National Museum of American Latino.
2: Henry mentions Congress because way before the creation of a Latino museum was even a possibility, the battle to try to make that happen took place on Capitol Hill.
6: My name is uh, Ileana ross Clayton, and I was a member of Congress for almost 30 years representing South Florida.
2: Ileana was born in Cuba and then moved to the U.S. when she was just eight years old. She was elected to Congress over 30 years ago as a Republican. As a congresswoman, Ileana says she formally started pushing for a Latino museum back in 2004. But she admits she saw the need for this much, much sooner.
6: Well, when I got elected in 1989, my children were very young. And I would take them to this beautiful museums that we have here in Washington, D.C., and part of the Smithsonian collage of museums. And I would always be amazed that there was never any any section or any museum devoted to the growing impact of Hispanic communities throughout the United States. And I said, wow, that's really missing. You know, maybe we should do something about that. There's a real void
2: To understand why Ileana, a congresswoman, needed to get involved in this issue, we have to first understand that the Smithsonian is actually part of the federal government. It's granted authority over its own grounds and buildings, but it depends on Congress for some funding and the authorization of major projects. Projects like a National Latino Museum. And the Smithsonian is, in part, funded by us, U.S. taxpayers. In 2021, more than 60% of the institution's funding came from the federal government. Creating a national Latino museum became a legislative priority for Ileana, and she started working on it with former Congressman Jose Serrano, a Democrat from New York. First, they needed to figure out what to call it.
6: We fussed about whether it should be called Hispanic American or Latino. I mean, just all kinds of words that you could throw out as to who we were. And finally, it was settled on the National Museum of the American Latino. Then it was time to draft some legislation. Jose and I filed a bill that would create a commission to study whether we could have uh, such a museum.
2: They couldn't introduce legislation to create a national Latino museum without formally exploring the possibility first. After several years of pushing for it, the creation of the commission was approved at the tail end of George W. Bush's time in office in 2008. The commission wouldn't actually be formed until a year later under the Obama administration. Remember Henry Munoz, now the chairman of the National Museum of the American Latino? He was also the person chosen to lead this commission. This is Henry talking at a 2009 press conference about the work ahead.
5: I want to say that at this moment in our nation's history, the appointment of a commission that is composed of citizen members, of people who will volunteer their time over the course of the next year, to look at the location, the concepts, the collections, and the fundraising to create a National Museum of the American Latino is historic. The group wrapped up and presented
2: its findings to the president in 2011. The result was what Ileana and supporting colleagues were hoping for. Building a museum for Latinos on the National
6: Mall was possible and vital. Anything less would fall short. Once we had that, then we wanted to actually build the museum. Oh boy, it's a task worthy of Hercules. But in 2017, uh, we introduced the National Museum of the American Latino Act. And I'm sorry to give you such a chronology, but it's been, it's been quite a struggle. The bill had a surprising amount of bipartisan support behind it, especially from
2: senators and House members who represented areas with large Latinx populations. The National Latino Museum was backed by people like then California Congressman Javier Becerra. Today, he's President Biden's Secretary of Health and Human Services.
0: If you walk through the mall of the nation's capital, you can come out understanding better than any place else in the world what it means to be an American. But once you finish that walk through all those museums along the mall, you don't have a complete
2: picture. Former Senator Ken Salazar of Colorado and Senator Bob Menendez of New Jersey, both Democrats, supported the museum. And some Republican heavyweights also threw their support behind it. The late Senator Orrin Hatch from Utah was an early proponent. And Texas Senator John Cornyn helped introduce the final legislation
6: that would make the museum official. But it wasn't all smooth sailing. There were many moments where we thought, oh my goodness, this is just never going to get off the ground. There were many arguments
2: against creating a national Latino museum. Things like it was too expensive or too political there were also objections to building on the National Mall. One line of thinking from several people in Congress was that, oh, if we give Latinos a museum, then every quote-unquote minority group is going to want one. Another popular suggestion among those not in favor was, instead of a Latino museum, why not a National Immigration Museum? Wouldn't that be more inclusive of other communities? Here's Utah Senator Mike Lee who at one point blocked legislation to create a national Latino museum.
5: But the last thing we need is to further divide an already divided nation with an array of segregated, separate but equal museums for hyphenated identity groups.
2: It was an ongoing tug of war, and the bill kept getting bogged down and kicked off the floor for many years. Then, December 2020 came along. We were in the midst of an unprecedented pandemic, and political tensions in the U.S. were reaching all-time highs. Congress was on the verge of passing COVID-19 relief legislation. So Ileana and her colleagues decided to attach their bill for a national Latino museum to this larger package. It was a tactical move. She says they knew the COVID legislation had to pass. And it finally did. On December 27, 2020, the National Latino Museum was wrapped up in a nearly $900 billion COVID-19 relief package, like a
6: Trojan horse. Ileana says the Trump administration took it in stride. I guess some people would think that it was ironic, but actually the Trump administration did not fight this bill at all.
1: The president's signature greenlit the creation of the National Museum of the American Latino. It also approved its funding model. Half of the money would come from Congress, and half would need to be fundraised from private donors. It's the same funding model the National Museum of African American History and Culture used. The cost of the National Latino Museum is projected to be anywhere between $600 to $800 million, though that's subject to change. The museum is going to need some big funders, which often means big companies. Walmart, Microsoft, Wells Fargo, Bank of America, and Coca-Cola are among those that have already pledged some millions. Along with securing its funding, the museum also needs to find its home. The location is highly contested right now, either to be on the National Mall, across from the National Museum of African American History and Culture, or on a different site. And then there's the question of staffing and curation. And along that process, Building an institution for the future that is representative of everyone in the Latinx community. Across generations, race, gender, and nationality. Easy, right? Presente started to give life to the National Museum of the American Latino. And as this space becomes more and more tangible, more real, people within the community are starting to ask whose stories are going to be on its walls and floors, and who might be left out. Here's Henry Muñoz, the chairman of the board for the Latino Museum, again.
5: Well, as a queer brown chairman of the National Museum of the American Latino, I would say that museums have always, they're strongest when they're places of conversation. And those conversations are not always easy. And this is the beginning of this process. So I would say, come on in.
3: Who gets to be part of the National Museum of the American Latino? Both behind the scenes and on display, that question hangs in the balance as this institution begins to take shape. Stay with us. No te vayas. we're back. When we left off, we heard from some of the people that were trying to make the National Museum of the American Latino a reality. Now, as efforts to build it are underway, we're going to dive behind the scenes to try to understand the vision of this museum and how crucial it is to include different voices in the
7: process.
2: Eduardo Diaz is giving us a tour of some of his favorite spots in Presente,
7: This has been seven years of a lot of hard work. We started from nothing. We had no project manager, we had no space, we had no money, you know. But it was built on a desire to, you know, plant the flag.
2: Until recently, Eduardo was the director of the Smithsonian Latino Center. The center has been around since 1997. It was the Smithsonian's response to its report about Latinos. Eduardo led the center from 2008 until it got absorbed into the Museum of the American Latino in the last two years. Eduardo is now the museum's acting deputy director.
7: You know, and I love very much that we're able to tell stories that people don't know about.
2: Stories, like Sotero Figueroa's.
7: Sotero Figueroa, you know, he's an Afro-Puerto Rican guy. And, of course, you know, we know that Afro-Puerto Ricans didn't have the same access, generally speaking, to resources, including quality education on the island. So... One of the things that made Sotero Figueroa so literate, so committed, was he was a typesetter. So that's the way he learned. It enhances his literacy. Sotero
2: later moved to New York, where he founded Imprenta América. It was a print shop in lower Manhattan that produced the Cuban Revolutionary Party's newspaper. He also contributed to other local Spanish-language publications. The hidden histories continue, now
7: on the West Coast. You see Toy Purina, the San Gabriel over here. She was a freedom fighter from the San Gabriel mission, Tongva woman, who was resisting the Spanish imposition of the mission systems, which were essentially, it was enslavement is basically was. But we don't know about Toypurina, right? And there's so many other characters. So who was Estebanico, right? First African person to come onto the American continent, right? He's a slave, a Berber, Muslim, And then there's Popé, the Pueblo Revolt of 1680 that booted the Spaniards out of what is now Santa Fe.
2: Eduardo says that a sculpture of Pueblo revolutionary leader Popé will be the museum's first acquisition in honor of Latinos' indigenous roots. The Black and Gray piece was made in 2018 by Pueblo artist Virgil Ortiz. Along with Eduardo's personal tour, we noticed some more things in the show. There were artifacts and stories about US expansionism and the Puerto Rican independence movement. A few steps ahead, there were displays about Cuban immigration and the history of Texas and Mexico. There were still some things missing. Latinos hail from more than 30 different countries, and not all of them and their histories were visible. There also weren't a lot of prominent stories about children, Asian Latinos, and the LGBTQ community out front and center. And Watado acknowledges they had to make some tough calls.
7: For example, Brazilians are not reflected here, and you know the Brazilian community is a tricky one because you know they're from a Portuguese-speaking country. And this is not a Hispanic you know gallery. This not a Hispanic museum. It's American Latino. And as far as I'm concerned, they're part of our community. And so I think as they grow as a community, we need to be more responsive to that demographic.
2: Since the National Museum of the American Latino won't be open for at least another decade, Eduardo says that the Molina Gallery will continue to be a space for the museum to figure out how to tell the overarching narrative of Latinos in the United States. It's an opportunity to realize what they missed the first time and figure out how they can make it better. After Presente, the team at the Smithsonian plans to create other exhibitions, including shows about Latinos in the military and Latino youth activism. But for now, one takeaway from this show, for everyone, is that there's still a lot of work ahead.
8: The Smithsonian is is incredibly important. I'm a historian, that's my academic discipline, and I've also taken classes on public history. That's what museums are essentially public history right there, right? For the people, for anyone to come in.
1: This is Rosa Clemente. She's a scholar, organizer, and independent journalist whose work centers on Afro-Black Latinx communities and identity. Back in 2008, she also ran for vice president on the Green Party ticket. For years now, she's been following the ongoing process to create a national museum for Latinos. And she's already feeling skeptical about the direction of the space.
8: Should the Smithsonian have a museum for us? Absolutely. The problem is even saying the Museum of the American Latino. What does that mean? Like, who do you include in Latino?
1: As a historian, Rosa says she finds herself drawn to museums as spaces for discourse and archiving. But as a Black Puerto Rican woman, she's all too aware of how these institutions often fail her and her community. It wasn't until she got to college that she began to understand her own history. She just didn't have access to that knowledge growing up.
8: I don't even think I knew why Puerto Rico was a colony. I just, I knew I was Puerto Rican and I was always proud of that.
1: Rosa began to look for spaces that were intentionally built for her and her Afro-Black communities, which is very different from institutions that simply
8: just make room. She says you can always tell the difference. I love going to museums. Part of me, when I walk into them, I look at what's on the wall and then I go, who's not here? And that's how I feel this museum is going to be. It's going to open one day and 15 million of us are going to walk in and be like, where are we? That's why she felt she had to call out the
1: Smithsonian. Earlier this year, Rosa wrote an op-ed for the news site Latino Rebels, which, like this show, is a Futuro Media property. Her piece was titled Afro-Black Latinx People, the Missing Pieces of National Museum of the American Latino. Rosa was concerned that the stewards of this new museum were excluding Afro-Black Latino, Latina, and Latinx history and input in this space. She drew that conclusion after learning that a lot of folks who were publicly advocating for the museum did not identify as Black or Afro-Latinx themselves.
8: There's 65 million Latinx people, potentially. Now imagine if one out of every four of us identified as Black. That's 15 million of us. They fundamentally know they can't move forward without us. They want us without us having any politic or power in these discussions and, and the work itself. Shortly after Rosa op-ed was published, the National Museum
1: of the American Latino reached out to Latino rebels and to Rosa to respond and to add a clarification. They said that she specifically called out the board of an unaffiliated advocacy group called Friends of the National Museum of the American Latino. The advocacy group told Latino USA that they agree that inclusivity needs to be a priority, 100%, and they're working on opening their lines of communication to see how they can improve in that area. But they also said the question of inclusion and diversity will ultimately be the responsibility of the Smithsonian. For her part, Whether it's an outside advocacy
8: group or the real deal, Rosa stands by her bigger picture critique. Why do you need to differentiate? If you are all working towards creating this museum and making sure it's on the mall in D.C., you're cherry picking right now to try to break down my argument as opposed to dealing with the issue at hand.
2: Leading the charge at the National Museum of the American Latino is its new director, Jorge Zamanillo. You heard from him at the beginning of the show, when he was welcoming us to Presente. Before this, Jorge spent more than 20 years at the History Miami Museum, most recently as its executive director and CEO. Now, he's the director of a museum that doesn't even physically exist yet. So, if you can imagine... His responsibilities are already
4: pretty substantial. You have to raise hundreds of millions of dollars. You have to you know, travel across the United States collecting stories and artifacts and objects, along with your team, of course. You, know, you need to consider all those things.
2: We interviewed him a few weeks before he officially became executive director of the Museum of the American Latino. That was back in May. We asked him about his plans to address the wide range and scope of the Latinx community in the museum including matters of race, nationality, and gender. He said he's aware of the matter, but he didn't really have a specific game plan yet.
4: We know that the Latino community is not a monolithic group, right? They have different backgrounds and different needs, and that's really important. So the team and I are really gonna cover as many themes as possible and many topics to try to explore what needs to be told and how it's presented, because it's tough. It's, you, know, you don't have space for everything,
2: Jorge also said that he's working with staff from the former Latino Center who have now joined the museum. For years, they've developed content and worked with Smithsonian museums on exhibitions, and Jorge says that a lot of the foundational work has already been underway thanks to them. To build off that work, Jorge talked about creating a widely accessible institution. That's a big priority
4: for him. I want our presence to be throughout the United States and Latino communities. So that's going to be a a new way we develop a museum where we take it out into communities across the United States, maybe as satellite exhibits, maybe as travelers, ways to engage uh, different communities, especially those that cannot make the trip to D.C. How, How are they going to experience this and how are they going to share their story? So that's what we need to figure out over the next few years.
2: We also asked Jorge about his vision for the museum in the long term.
4: It's going to be a vision that's developed not only by uh, the team and myself, but really by, by talking to people and, uh, and challenging ourselves. Well, you know, what can we do better than other museums? Find the stories of why this museum matters, right? And how do we make sure that this Latino history is American history? That's going to be a challenge. And I don't have the answer for it right now, what that main vision is, but it's going to be fun to explore. The museum is currently a work in progress.
2: But overall, it seems that there are still way more questions than answers about the future of this space.
1: For Rosa, it still feels disingenuous to have an institution like the Smithsonian, one with a history of centering
8: whiteness and colonialism, claim to be prioritizing diversity. Ultimately, the museum's job is to make sure that every story, whether bad or good, is told, whether we were excluded one time and now we're not. So those are the things that I also think people are grappling with in a way, but also We have to be careful how much time we spend begging people to include us. Rosa says she doesn't want to feel like a visual
1: prop, and she has a point. The Molina Gallery, the new state-of-the-art space holding the Presente exhibition, is only about 4,500 square feet in size. Compare that to the 325,000 square feet available to the public in the entire Museum of American History. It's just a little bit more than 1% of the total space of this massive building dedicated to American history and culture. Considering Latinos represent 19% of the U.S. population, it's telling that a space like this, completely dedicated to Latinos and Latinas, never existed in this particular museum to begin with. According to Rosa... If only elite non-Black folks are involved from the start, then all you're doing is building an elite non-Black museum. Any talk of inclusion or diversity after that just feels like lip service to her.
8: The reality is the entire experience of the American Latino is rooted in Black and brownness. That should be the center part. And everything gets built from that, not throwing us in. Because some people are speaking out or somebody was like, wait a minute, everybody here, there is not one Afro-Black Latino person represented. As Presente and the
1: museum gain momentum, more people are getting vocal with their thoughts. Outlets, including The Hill and El American, published conservative reviews of Presente, criticizing what authors identified as a streak of radical leftism in the show. They said Presente failed to condemn left-wing dictatorships in Latin America and left out Latinx contributions to the U.S. military. They also took issue with its quote-unquote woke take on American expansionism as a successor to Spanish colonialism. One piece even called for Congress to revoke its funding for the National Museum of the American Latino entirely. Earlier this year, the museum announced the formation of a scholarly advisory committee. Eighteen prominent Latinx academics from across the country joined the council, bringing their expertise in a range of topics, such as literature and journalism, politics and law, LGBTQ issues, Central American migration, Mexican-American identity, the African diaspora, Caribbean history, and the list goes on. Their job, formally, is to review exhibitions and help guide the vision Jorge was talking about earlier. but. We're not sure exactly how their work will manifest, and how influential their input will actually be. The opportunity at hand is unique. A museum by, about, and for Latinxes on one of the nation's biggest platforms. No single museum will ever satisfy everyone. But if this is to be a truly representative museum of the American Latino, we must keep holding it to that standard anyway.
2: The National Mall in D.C. is bustling today. Tourists are walking around with their families. People in suits are making their way back to work after lunch. Cars zoom past us. There's also an ice cream truck parked kind of close by and it's blasting its music. It's around noon and the sun is out and bright and hot. But Ale and I sit down anyway, under the shade of a large tree.
1: Have you been to the mall before?
2: Um, I have. But, like, as, like, a tourist, so, like, I'm always... When I come to D.C., I'm like, well, what is actually in the mall? You know what I mean? Like, I'm not, like, too, too, like... We just walked out of Percente and took a 15-minute-long stroll up the mall to reach this particular spot.
1: This is the plot where a lot of advocates, including folks at the Smithsonian, want the Museum of the American Latino to stand. It's not the biggest plot of land, but it's, like... It's kind of an iconic setting. Right here in front of me is the Washington Monument. And then right across the way, almost like poetically, is the National Museum of African American
2: History and Culture. This isn't the only site that's being considered for the museum. There's a spot adjacent to the Senate side of the Capitol building, too. Some people have toyed with the idea of refurbishing some existing buildings, like the Smithsonian's Arts and Industries building, or even the Department of Agriculture, which is the only federal agency on the National Mall, and is housed in this giant, elegant building. This spot though, it's calm, and it's right in the middle of everything. If it was to happen here, I feel a lot of the people that we've spoken with would almost feel like, you know, mission accomplished, you know, to really have it here in the center at the National Mall, accessible for everyone.
1: There's a, right now, there's like a little trail. There's a lot of old trees all around. And it's kind of, it's very peaceful and kind of lovely the way it is. But this is kind of the spot that could maybe have new life in the future.
2: As Ale and I sit here, taking it in, we feel all the potential this place holds. If the Latino Museum is built here, it could represent the national scale recognition Latinxs have deserved and demanded of the Smithsonian. We're also left with so many questions, questions that can only be answered with time. Yes, it's gonna take a decade to bring this space to life, And we will continue to hold the Smithsonian accountable to creating a museum that is honest and thoroughly inclusive of the Latinx community. But this is also a massive institution with a history of exclusion. And after decades of willful neglect, some skepticism is warranted. Can we trust that they'll get this right?
3: This episode was produced by Alejandra Salazar and Reinaldo Leaños Jr. and edited by Andrea López Cruzado. It was mixed by Andy Bosnick. Fact-checking for this episode by Elisa Baena. The Latino USA team includes Marta Martinez, Daisy Contreras, Mike Sargent, Julieta Martinelli, Victoria Estrada, Patricia Zulbaran, and Julia Rocha, with help from Raúl Pérez. Our editorial director is Fernanda Santos. Our director of engineering is Stephanie Lebeau. Our senior engineer is Julia Caruso. Our associate engineers are Gabriela Baez and JJ Carubin. Our marketing manager is Luis Luna. Our theme music was composed by Zenia Rubinos. I'm your host and executive producer, Maria Hinojosa. Join us again on our next episode. And in the meantime, look for us on all of your social media. And remember, no te vayas. Ahí nos vemos. Bye.
1: Latino USA is made possible in part by the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation. California Endowment, building a strong state by improving the health of all Californians. And funding for Latino USA's coverage of a culture of health is made possible in part by a grant from the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation. Oh, thank you guys are so wonderful.
6: And let me tell you uh, I thought it was silly when you first said to put this microphone. I thought, you know, it's just going to be the same kind of, but I have never used this system before. Wow. And the sound system that I hear in my ear, it makes such a difference. So thank you for fussing over this and, and making sure that we would have this kind of setup. It is great. And now I'm going to, I'm going to run to my three o'clock appointment. (laughs)
0: That's it for now. Make sure to check out the National Museum of the American Latino in D.C. And yes, if you look close enough, you'll find the Brown Enough book. Remember to subscribe to Latino USA, which, by the way, is turning 30 this year, wherever you get your podcast.